Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions about meditation and Buddhist practice. So if you have questions, you can post them in the chat at any time. Spend the first 15 minutes in silent meditation to collect the questions and to collect ourselves. So take that time to clear your mind and set your mind on present moment. You can do walking meditation, sitting meditation, and post your questions when you have them. I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to begin answering.
All right, we're back. So from here on, we'll close the chat. Chat should be used only for questions. So if you have more questions, feel free to continue to ask them. Make sure your questions are ideally about your own practice or your own application of the Buddha's teaching in your life. Something that's useful for you, not just curiosity or intellectual or speculative. And related to what we do. So related to the Buddha's teaching and hopefully related to mindfulness and meditation. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. If we see one aspect of reality clearly in mindfulness meditation and come to know suffering, impermanence, and non-self, and that is sufficient to know reality, then why do we have to note of where our attention is when it deviates from noting the abdomen? Should we not just bring our attention back to the abdomen and keep it there again and again without noting or spending time outside attending to the abdomen, rising and falling, noting those only? Well, there's nothing special about the abdomen. It's not as though bringing your mind back and ignoring everything else is going to have some special consequence. If you're not noting everything else, you're only noting a very small subsection of of what you experience, right? Well, or or, or a part, a subsection anyway, a sub subgroup. Oh, there's many other things you're not noting. So, why would you think it would be better? to only note one specific thing, the abdomen, when there's so much else going on. It'd be much better served to note everything, including those things that distract you from the abdomen. So I don't really get how that relates to your premise about knowing impermanent suffering and non-self. Really trying to control it, to keep it with the abdomen, is likely to lead to a sense of control or, or an expectation of control. That you can always just bring the mind back and some somehow eventually keep the mind with the stomach, which is not realistic. And for that reason, you really should note whatever distracts you from that as well. If we try to keep the eight precepts but break them regularly, does this weaken our atitana? What are your recommendations for transitioning from successfully keeping the five precepts to developing the ability to keep the eight precepts? Well, the eight precepts are only really realistic uh, for most people if they leave the the uh, household life. Either that or if they, they practice it uh, intermittently. Like the tradition was to practice it on the full moon, the new moon, and the half moon which is about f roughly four times a month, right? And one For one day and one night. So you'd start before the sun comes up and you'd end after the sun comes up the next day. So you'd make sure that you had uh, a full 24 hours. Before the sun comes up, you start, uh, you take the eight precepts and then you do a whole 24 hours plus wait until after the sun has come up and then go back to the five precepts. And, you do that four times a month. That's uh, that's sort of a reasonable practice. Um, now, in in the Buddha's time, of course, there were no the, the weeks were divided in that way. So now nowadays, our week is not lunar in in its origin. So it's going to be out of sync. So another thing you might do, which some people do, I think, is just keep them every Sunday or Saturday or something like that. One day of the the modern week, whatever that week is called. Um, but as for your question about keeping the eight precepts and breaking them, yeah, I wouldn't recommend keeping them if you if you see that you're just going to keep breaking them. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't worry about any special circumstances, but certainly it's going to weaken your appreciation of them your reverence of them your sense of sincerity about them if you if you know that you're probably going to break them then it's not there's not really a lot of strength in in taking them in the first place so yeah i would probably just recommend finding something a little more reasonable since i've been living alone for a year 
I've noticed my attention span is as short as a goldfish's, which makes it challenging for me to be mindful. Do you have any tips? Well, mindfulness is meant to be a challenge. It's not meant to be something you do when you suddenly have a great attention span. Right? It's meant to develop things like attention span, but it develops them not by control or not by, um, by force. It develops them by seeing the short attention span. So if mindfulness is showing you your short attention span again and again, that's actually quite valuable. It's showing you impermanent, suffering, non-self. And if, you, if you're patient with that and methodical, continuing to see that again and again, you'll, you'll see your mind starts to change. It starts to get weary of, of this incessant uh, distractedness or incessant pursuit of distraction. And your mind will settle down naturally, but not by force, by observation. Is seeking suitable external conditions for meditation, desire? Only mindfulness of desire leads to maladaptiveness. Particularly, I am referring conditions such as where to live or with whom to meet. Well, it's, there's suitable and then there's pleasant. You, you should seek out suitable, in, in, in other words, association with people who are, um, who are unethical is going to be unsuitable. Food can be unsuitable. Uh, even certain postures of the body can be unsuitable. So for some people, they should, they at certain times you're better off doing switching postures. If you're sitting down and falling asleep, you could stand up or even do walking. If you're walking and you feel restless, you can sit down or stand still or sit down. That sort of thing. So that's suit. That's regarding suitable. But um, the only caution I would be is uh, I would I would mention is in regards to seeking out pleasure. So be careful that you're not just running away from uh, unpleasantness. So like where to live, um, yeah, can, can be can be related to suitability, but it's much more often related to uh, pleasure. You know, if it's unpleasant living where you are. Be careful you're not running away from that because displeasure is something you should better off face than run away from. After a Vipassana session, except for a rare insight such as arising and passing of lust, I soon forget what else happened. My mind wanders a lot. Am I doing something wrong? Should I maintain a diary? Well, you, you should gain better clarity about how your mind works. Um, if you're forgetting what happened, that's not such a big deal. Um, it would be more problematic if you weren't aware during the session. Like during the session, are you are you aware of what's happening? Are you able to catch your distractions? Are you able to, to uh, recognize and pay attention? Not being able to remember exactly what happened after the fact, not not such a big deal. It's not like you have to keep track or, or it's not like we're concerned about what happened in the past. Just try and stay in the present. If your mind wanders a lot, um, I mean, that's a good sign that you're able to say that. That's a sign that you are indeed paying attention. And that's that's sufficient, you know. If you're, if you're aware that your mind is wandering, uh, observe that regularly, your mind will start to change. And you'll start to notice how stressful it is or how uh, unnecessary it is anyway to to just wander aimlessly. And your mind will start to settle down. It'll become sharper. It'll become more focused. It just takes time and patience, practice. Is it realistic for a lay person to follow the precepts to perfection? 
Sometimes not lying could cause problems at work or with family. Not killing can be hard if your house is invaded by termites. It's not a question of whether it's realistic. I mean, if you don't keep the five precepts, you're quite likely going to, you're destined to be born, to be reborn uh, as an animal or even in hell as a ghost, that sort of thing, in in a place of great suffering. So being realistic has, has nothing to do. It's not like um, these are rules that were laid down and they're going to be punished if you don't follow them. Like it's not like the Buddha is a god that's going to punish you and he's an unrealistic god because he laid down unrealistic rules and and therefore he shouldn't punish you. It's just the way it is. If you, uh, if you kill, yeah, bad things come. It, it corrupts your mind. It pollutes your mind. It's it's horrible. I mean, not as though the termites are at fault. If you built a house that's susceptible to termites, well, there's something wrong with the house. And uh, yeah, killing killing the termites. You can't say, oh, well, it's unrealistic not to kill. That's not an excuse. That would be like someone murdering someone and saying, well, it was. It's unrealistic for you to think I wasn't going to murder this person. Um, yeah, and as far as lying, well, if you have to lie, then you've got bigger problems than lie than than the lie. But uh, it doesn't matter because lying is deceptive; it's um, manipulative. You are withholding, or not not just withholding; you are distorting another person's uh, relationship with reality. It's uh, antithetical to clarity and mindfulness and wisdom. Lying is pretty bad too. All five of the precepts really you can't you can't get around them. There's none of them that are going to uh, give you a free pass if you break them. So unreasonable, hard, yes, can be very hard. Um, but if you want to be truly free from suffering, you you would um, give up your life before you break one of the five precepts. That's the that's the goal. Now, if you break the five precepts, of course, people who are new to Buddhism, who are uh, weak in their determination and, and in their confidence and their uh, understanding of the Buddhist teaching, you break the precepts, sure. It's, it's not the end of the world if you do it once. It's just bad. <laughs> and... Uh, if you can, if you're if you're inclined to break them, or you're you're callous about breaking them, nobody's going to save you. It's not like uh, it's not like being Buddhist is going to protect you from that. It's, that's karma. It's, it's, uh, no one can escape their karma. It's an old friend of mine used to say, a monk, an Israeli monk, used to say. I tell you one thing I know for absolute certain no one can escape their karma. How do you deal with the closest people who disturb you every day? Do you just note seeing or disliking, or do you actually try to fix the problem? How do you know when to start addressing the issue? Yeah, well, don't be too worried about knowing when to start addressing the issue or how to fix the issue or that sort of thing or, or expecting it to come to you. Just mindfulness will help you with that. If you are noting the disliking and the seeing, you'll, you'll get a better sense of how and what to say. And it's not magically going to give you the answers. Mindfulness isn't suddenly going to fix all your problems. But it will allow you to approach and to apply your own reason. You still need to apply a reason. Look at the issue, apply your reason. Mindfulness will give you the clarity to have true reason so that you're reasonable, so that you're not ad addressing it with anger or greed or conceit or arrogance or that sort of thing. Mindfulness will purify, help to purify all of those. And as a result, uh, you'll be able to better apply your reason. But you just apply your reason as normally. Mindfulness only makes it makes it more pure and, and better.
and to that extent you're, you're still going to make mistakes if you if you're missing information if you're lacking experience worldly experience in some uh, affair like family affairs business affairs that's what life is you're still going to make mistakes mindfulness will only first of all protect you from being malicious or or unwholesome in your approach and second of all it will help you deal with the consequences if you do make a mistake it'll help you learn from it rather than uh, than uh, dwell on it or obsess about it Is the meditation on the individual body parts a part of the core practice? Is it good and beneficial to do? And if so, should it be done regularly? Yeah, it's considered to be, in in this um, practice, it would be considered to be a sort of auxiliary meditation, something you could practice on the side uh, occasionally as a support for mindfulness. So it's something you might do on schedule once a day or, or a couple of times a day, just as a reminder, as a support. So it's not part of the core practice, no, it's, but it's a sort of a supportive practice, and it's good and beneficial. And If you feel it would help, if you think it might help you, then you probably, I wouldn't say should do it regularly, but you could do it regularly. You could try and see how it, affects you whether it's helpful you know you just those kinds of things you just don't want to push too hard and think of them as somehow essential because they can they're they're touch and go they can be helpful they can be uh, harmful in the wrong circumstances or harmful if wrongly applied because they can lead to depression and you know that's it's a negative thing so if if you take it as a negative like oh the body is disgusting and so on and if you're not mindful and you push too hard on that it's only helpful at certain times like when you're lustful can be quite helpful despite meditating for a while now i have never been able to attain jhanas is it because i'm too distracted and indulge in sense pleasures what do i need to do to attain deep insight well, if you're distracted and indulgent, sense pleasure, sense pleasures, then yes, attaining jhanas. You're probably talking about the samatha jhanas, and that doesn't have to do with insight. Deep insight might be a little bit um, of a misconception of of what we're looking for. It's not really deep, nor is it insight. It's just clarity. It's and so the, so the word wouldn't be deep. It would be. Uh, strong i guess or profound or sharp or bright clarity so it's a it's a strong sort of clarity but it's not about being deep right like a deep insight is just sort of the wrong way of looking at it profound maybe is 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 okay but still rather than profound just more well profound is is good because it's it's kind of like a an intense clarity strong clarity a, a, a brilliant clarity that just blows you away by how quote-unquote profound it is but not profound in the sense of deep just profound in the sense of life-changing the clarity should be life-changing but uh, so the, so translating vipassana as insight is probably not the best translation it should be seeing clearly that's what it is right and that has nothing to do with attaining the samatha jhanas. The samatha jhanas can be useful as a precursor, but we don't uh, encourage their cultivation. We don't teach their. We just teach people to practice satipatthana to see clearly. So, what do you need to see clearly? Is you need to practice the four satipatthana. I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. We have an at-home meditation course you can take uh, without ever having to go anywhere. Just make sure you follow the booklet and practice once or twice a day at least an hour a day and then we'll meet once a week and we can guide you towards uh, towards seeing clearly i find it hard to be confident in what i've learned from experience 
I often swing back and forth between decisions and determinations. Can you give advice on how to settle a fickle, wavering mind? Well, that sounds like doubt. You just know doubting, doubting, unsure. Yeah, hard to be confident, so you have doubt. That's the thing is doubt can be taken as an object. That makes you really confident because suddenly the problem is the object and the problem is, is under the microscope. This thing that was getting in the way of your practice is suddenly the object of your practice and it's suddenly impotent. It's suddenly you've taken away all its power and you have confidence. What do you have confidence in? This is doubt. You're very confident that you are doubting, right? And once you're very confident that you're doubting, of course you're not doubting anymore. And it gives you a better attitude. As for a wavering mind, there's more there to than just doubt, but that would be distraction or restlessness. But it's, it's usually caused by doubt, which can be augmented by things like worry, fear, um, confusion. And of course, greed and anger can always be sort of supportive in that unwholesomeness. Is playing video games bad for meditation and mindfulness? Yeah, it's a mental activity. So you're engaging your mind in something that is not mindful, and that's going to cultivate habits of that sort. And that will indeed get in the way of the mental habit of mindfulness. On top of that, there's going to be a lot of, uh, I mean, things about thing about video games is they are um, they're like drugs, you know. So there's a, a pleasure and then a desire for the pleasure, an addiction to the pleasure. So it's uh, it's it's highly unwholesome and going to cloud your mind, make it harder for you to see clearly, make you more biased, less objective. You get more angry, easier, frustrated, that sort of thing. I mean, it's not evil. It's not like you, if you if you were to do the play one of those shooter shooting games, um, it wouldn't be like like you're developing unwholesomeness for trying to kill. That that's speculative. I mean, it depends. Some people can have spe extra evil because of the cruelty involved. And in fact, yeah, maybe there's something there. We've talked about this before, but it's not like you're killing or something like that. It's much more just. Uh, my stepmother once was talking about this a long time ago. She said when we we talk about like when we were kids, my parents were reluctant to give us guns to play guns, toy guns to play with, uh, thinking that it might lead us to be violent. Right? But my stepmother was saying there was this, this study that, um, and I bring it up because it sounds reasonable, that says that it's not really what it's about when you when you have guns and you shoot at each other as kids. You're not actually trying to kill the you're not thinking that you're you're not fantasizing about killing the other person. It's just a fancy way of playing tag, right? So video games, it's not really that it's not necessarily that the people playing it have any fantasy about murder. It's just tag, really. So it's not what I mean to say is it's not terrible. It's just another one of these entertainment things. And if it consumes your life where you you engage in it for long periods, then yeah, it's going to interrupt your capacity to be mindful for sure. It's just going to make you impotent. It's going to make your practice fairly impotent, make it really hard to progress, hard to see clearly, that's all. There's so much suffering in the world. What are some ways to share the teachings from the Satipatthana Sutta? With people who aren't Buddhist and have no desire to meditate. Well, I would say be a good practitioner yourself. 
the only way because it you can't share something with someone who has no desire for it but if you present a uh, example of the benefits then there's generally a comparison people can make they can compare their own restless uh, corrupted polluted mind with your mind which is clear and quiet peaceful happy and they will will resonate with that and then they will start to cultivate this desire to meditate there's no benefit from pushing it on people who don't want it right being a good example yourself is surprisingly effective it will certainly change the people around you at the very least it'll drive them away if they're not at all um if they don't have any of the prerequisites like none of the goodness in their hearts to even want to consider meditating some people are so on the wrong path that they will just get angry and and upset even at the thought of meditation or even seeing other people mindful will make them angry that's how awful awful their polluted their minds are so at the very least that will happen and then you'll know that that person was never going to make it and other people will suddenly be curious and another thing i guess i would say is there's no need to uh, go out and find people who aren't interested there's lots of people who are interested and you really should focus on those people you get much better results if you apply your efforts towards those who are interested furthermore even if there there are of course more people who aren't interested than are interested in interested that's always going to be the case and there is no solution looking for a solution is just going to lead you to eventual burnout you'll eventually get tired and give up because you can't solve everyone's problems not even the buddha could right buddha passed away and yet there are still people with no interest in meditation so he obviously didn't solve everyone's problems and he certainly couldn't which jnana should we stay in when not in retreat for example can we choose to stay always in sankarupika jnana Uh, if, if you are uh, vigilant, diligent, you can um, maintain a level of sankarupekanyana. And that would then allow you to continuously enter into the higher stages of knowledge. But, I mean, I'm a bit hesitant about the should we stay in part, because when you're not in retreat... I mean, it's not like you can choose to be in a stage of knowledge. Knowledges aren't aren't rooms of a house that you stay in, or you go from this room to that room. Knowledge is is about seeing clearly. So it's more about um, what you're cultivating. If you're constantly cultivating equanimity, that yeah, that's fine. I mean, that just means you're constantly being mindful, and you would stay in. Um, you would have a you would have a continuous equanimity because of your vigilance, because you were not being distracted by anything else. Honestly, it's more about those. The stages of knowledge are more about making a determination for them. When you're outside of a retreat, I would focus more on just being mindful. Uh, unless you want again to to make a determination, like we do in uh, in the at home course, we have once a week. So, like you do in the the review course, you could do a review once a week, changing the stages of knowledge. But then you would go all the way back to Udaya Bhayanyana and work your way up. That's the sort of thing that I would recommend. But in normal practice, I wouldn't worry too much about which stage of knowledge you're observing or you're, you're realizing.
How do I become more mindful when I am feeling anxious? Well, you don't become more mindful. It's not about more or less. Mindfulness is something that happens now. So when you're feeling anxious, you would say anxious, anxious. Um, you should also note the physical sensation, which sensations which come from anxiety, which are distinct from the actual anxiety themselves. Note them in note them distinct from anxiety. They are not anxiety. They are feelings like in the stomach or the chest or the head, the shoulders. All of these various parts of the body that are affected by anxiety. Note them distinctly, feeling or tense, that sort of thing. Note like note the disliking or the worry or the fear, or that sort of thing. Any thoughts as well? I have OCD, and this leads to a compulsion to count things and repeat math equations in my head over and over again. Should I note thinking, counting, or calculating? I notice it's worse when anxious. Well, you should notice, note, note the anxiousness as well, right? Um, but as far as thinking, I would stick to just thinking, because otherwise you might overthink it. <laughs> So thinking, counting is still thinking, calculating is still thinking, so don't overthink it. If it's thinking, say thinking. That's all just thinking. You probably do better not to try to distinguish because, again, it's OCD. You'll, you'll, you'll get obsessive about that. It's all just thinking. Just say thinking. Keep it simple. It's not magic. It's not like oh, with OCD, there's often this sort of magical thinking, like i got to do this right, right? got to do it exactly right. And that's that's not not a part of mindfulness. The words are not going to be exact and they don't have to be exact. Keep it simple, keep it keep it easy going, right? If you if you start to force yourself like um well push yourself to to not obsess over which word to use, that can be helpful. You say, no, no, I know I want to find the right word, but I'm gonna just be stubborn and just say thinking for everything. Your your mind will start to rebel against that no no but i need the right word what if this is the wrong word yeah. it will help you to be a little more laid back so just say thinking thinking but again you should note the hindrances as well anxiety is one of the hindrances you should note anxious anxious when you're anxious Can panganyana be experienced by someone that practices alone at home? And if so, can it be scary? Knowledges aren't scary. Uh, you can be scared by something. You can be scared by seeing clearly. I mean, that's just how you react to the idea of it or to the ideas that it evokes. So it can be scary to be confronted with the truth. Not it, it, sorry. It's not. It's not scary to be to being confronted, but you can be, get scared as a result because you want it to be different, or because you were relying on it to be different. So it's not the knowledge that is scary. Um, but the knowledges are are just a description of the process of letting go, basically seeing clearly and letting go. So of course they can be experienced at any time. I wouldn't I wouldn't obsess too much about specific stages of knowledge. Again, I would reserve those specifically to when you're doing uh, making determinations. Otherwise, you just get obsessive about them. That's not helpful. Remember the three characteristics. That's what, that's all you really need to think about seeing the three characteristics more clearly. The at-home course is on hold. Currently, formal practice is without the touching points and mostly do the basic beginning instructions. This way, I can do much more practice. Is this okay? Well, I have to ask why a basic practice allows you to do more. Um, sounds like it might be challenging to do to do a more advanced practice, and you know certainly you shouldn't do something that's too advanced. But you also shouldn't 
be complacent or, or content with that which is easy because it's the challenge that's going to benefit you. So try and try and encourage yourself to be challenged and to appreciate the importance of a challenge rather than just falling back on what's easy, what's comfortable. Right? If it's comfortable, that's not really the point. The idea is to take you out of your comfort zone and force you to confront things that you don't want to, things that you're averse to, things that you react to. In meditation practice, I notice my aversions to work, struggle, and my attachment to pleasure. Though I keep noting it, I still find myself dragging my feet towards those aversions. Do you have any advice? Well, that's the nature of non-self, yeah. You, you have to appreciate that it's, mindfulness doesn't give you control. It gives you clarity. You're seeing the unwieldiness of your bad habits. They're so deeply ingrained that you don't even have any control over them. You can't force yourself to give them up. You really need to do something a little more intensive. You need to, if you really want to free yourself from them, you've got to put in the work to bring yourself out of it. It's not going to just end because you want to. So we recommend we have a, we have an intensive course. That's the sort of next step that we'd encourage people to undertake, and that can really help you gain a great foundation in the practice. Work through a lot of the coarser issues. It's the kind of thing you can do again and again and refine your mindfulness and purify your mind on a deeper and deeper level. Gain greater and greater clarity. Just to be sure we are keeping the first precept correctly, what life forms are covered under living beings? We say plants are living but not sentient, and therefore do not fall under this precept, but how do we know for sure that plants are insentient? Research shows that plants react positively and grow well in response to loving thoughts and conversely, even wilt and die if ignored or treated unlovingly all else being equal. What about viruses, bacteria, and other microbes that are destroyed by medical interventions? Are they not living forms, or are they too considered to be insentient like plants? And if so, why? Well, I mean, plants don't have consciousness, that's the point. They're, that's what makes them insentient. It has nothing to do with reactions. Like, take a cell, for example. A human cell doesn't have consciousness. Uh, I mean, the physical has no consciousness at all. There, there's no consciousness in any part of our body. Consciousness is independent of the body, or not independent, but it's distinct from the body. It's not independent, and that's the problem. That's why killing the physical body is disruptive of the mind. You can't kill the mind, so you can't kill the being. You don't kill someone when you kill them. You only kill the body. And the problem with that is it's disruptive and uh, traumatic for the living, for the for the mind. And so plants don't have that ability to be traumatized by. I mean, there's no mind associated with the plant. That's the point. But like, if you if your argument is that plants react, well, cells also react. That's the, that's physical physical um, organisms. Uh, as for bacteria and other microbes, I mean, they're also single cells, so I don't know that any of them have sentience. I don't know that all of them don't, I can't say. Um, the good rule of thumb for those kinds of things is if you're not clearly aware of a being being killed, then you're not breaking the precept. Like microscopic beings, you don't even know that you don't even see them. You don't know that that's what, that they're there. But as far as things like vaccines or antibiotics, I think the general understanding is that um, 
yeah, the, the single-celled things are not actually sentient. Can walking meditation be done anywhere, such as inside my home, or is there a requirement that it must be done outside? Walking meditation should be done uh, where you do sitting. There's never, I mean, I don't know where you would have read that it should be done outside. Some traditions will talk about doing walking meditation outside, but certainly not in this tradition. Walking should be done in the same place you do sitting. So if you're sitting inside, yeah, you should walk in the same room. But if you're sitting outside, then you should also walk outside. Walking first and then sitting, done in the same place one after the other. What responsibility does a spiritual teacher bear if based on well-intentioned but inaccurate information, sincere students' access toward continued progress on the path is restricted? Could there still be traces of clinging and delusion to a particular view on the part of the teacher that causes this? And if yes, could the teacher be a stumbling block to such sincere students that leave the spiritual path as a result? Well, you don't bear responsibility for other people's um, experiences. You only bear responsibility for your own actions. So if a speecher, sorry, if a teacher is well-intentioned, truly well-intentioned, then they bear no blame whatsoever. But the problem with this phrase, well-intentioned, is we use it, but uh, it, it, it's often used in cases where the, the mind is deluded, so there's ignorance, there's delusion, there can be conceit and arrogance, there's often partiality, so it's not well-intentioned at all, right? Um, but if, if the information is just inaccurate, then it's unfortunate that the teacher is misinformed, but... They don't bear any blame whatsoever. What is the purpose of a Vipassana retreat? Should I go to it with intent or a purpose? The purpose is to see clearly. That's what the word means. So you should go for the purpose. It's a good question because you should go for the purpose of seeing clearly as opposed to for the purpose of trying to fix your problems, trying to avoid your problems, trying to escape your problems, trying to um, trying to gain anything in particular. You should just be there to observe so that you can see clearly. It's that sort of attitude that allows you to be objective and not have any expectations and confront the present moment without running away. How do I know if a question is a good question to ask, and should we not ask questions in order to surmount delusion and doubt? Well, it depends on the context, I guess. In, in this context, uh, a good question is a question that is of importance to your own practice and has relevance to your own uh, development of wholesomeness and good qualities. Uh, and to that end, um, asking questions can result in a response that allows you to surmount delusion and doubt. Now, I hesitate there because if it is something intellectual, then the problem isn't that you are doubting about let's just as an example suppose it were an intellectual concern you had you read something and you had doubts about it and it's an intellectual thing the problem isn't your doubt about that particular question the problem is that you are fixated on some intellectual idea and mindfulness is is a bit slippery in that regard like it it's not something you can theorize it's not something that you can just okay, I, I, I'm perfectly confident in the theory and that confidence is going to help me in mindfulness. 
you really kind of have to let go of theory and ideas and concepts, even Buddhist concepts. Mindfulness is really just about experience. What are you experiencing now? I mean, it's nothing to do with religion. It's not doctrinal or dogmatic. It's real. What's real right now? There's seeing, there's hearing, there's smelling, there's tasting, there's feeling, thinking, because that's really how you overcome doubt. There's nothing to doubt. Seeing is seeing. No, no room for doubt there. No reasonable room for doubt. And if you're doubting that, that's where you can really overcome doubt because you realize how ridiculous it is that you doubt such things like, is pain really pain? <laughs> is thought really thought? They're so simple that they, they allow for perfect confidence and uh, clarity, which overcomes delusion. Thank you, Bantu. We've crossed the hour, and you've answered every question in the top tier. Okay, well, thank you, as you always, everyone, for your questions. Thank you for Chris and Edit and Jim for helping. Of course. Uh, best wishes to everyone. May everyone find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.